the epistle to the Galatians. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Beginning a new series this morning going through this epistle. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I want to pray that You will send Your Holy Spirit this morning to bring illumination to this text. I want to ask that we will be gripped by the grace of the Gospel. I want to ask that we will be stunned by Your love for us. And I pray that it will set us free. Set us free from the things of this world that have a hold on us. Set us free to live utterly and completely for You. And I pray this confidently in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said earlier, this is Reformation Sunday, and depending on your tradition that you grew up in, you may be wondering what is Reformation Sunday. Uh, the official date that marks the inauguration of the Reformation is October 31st, 1517. On that day, Martin Luther uh, nailed his now-famous 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door um, to protest uh, concerns that he had about the church. Uh, The church in Luther's day was corrupt, and they were actually teaching that you could purchase what was called indulgences. And when you bought these indulgences from the church... Uh, Your family members and friends could be set free from purgatory and they could fly to heaven. John Tetzel was well known for uh, selling these indulgences for the church, uh, taking advantage of the peasants in Germany. And he had a little ditty that helped him sell these indulgences. It went like this. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So, I guess you could call that a 16th century commercial. (laughs) Martin Luther and the subsequent reformers responded with righteous indignation. Uh, They responded with a tremendous zeal for the truth by clarifying once again that there is only one way to be saved. 
There is only one way to be justified. We call that the doctrine of justification. I know that's a big term. So let me define justification very simply. Justification means that you are forgiven of all your sins and in return, Jesus gives you His righteousness so that you are forgiven, you are adopted into God's family, and you are now loved by God. The Reformers emphasize that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, the ground of our forgiveness and acceptance by God is based on Jesus' perfect life, His death on the cross, paying the price for our sin. Jesus purchased our salvation. This is what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 28. He said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Another translation says, which He purchased with His own blood. Another translation says, which He bought with His own blood. Uh, You can't purchase your salvation because Jesus already purchased your salvation. Let me state it even stronger. You couldn't buy your salvation because the price is way too high. Only Jesus could buy your salvation and He did that with His perfect blood that was shed on the cross. Our responsibility now is not to do penance, not to flog ourselves, not to crawl over broken glass, Our responsibility now is simply to put our faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for us and say thank you. That's our responsibility. Uh, Galatians 2, 8 and 9 summarizes it very well. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that anyone should boast. So Paul was really clear. It's by grace, through faith in Christ. It has nothing to do whatsoever with what you have done. And that's what the Reformers were hammering home. Now, it's fitting that we begin this new series on the letter to the churches in Galatia on Reformation Sunday because the theme is similar. The gospel of pure grace has been poisoned from false teachers. The gospel of pure grace has been poisoned by false teachers. And we refer to these false teachers as Judaizers. These Judaizers were teaching that it's nice that you put your faith in Christ. It's good that you put your faith in Christ. But... And right away you should get nervous. Because as soon as someone says, it's good that you put your faith in Christ, but there's a problem. They said, but it's not good enough. The men also need to be circumcised. And all the people need to obey the law of Moses if you're going to be accepted by God. 
and Paul was absolutely outraged because of this message. You can see part of his response in Galatians 5, 2-4. Turning ahead just a little bit, Galatians 5, beginning at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. If you're going to be accepted by God, if you're going to be justified by God, if you're going to submit to circumcision, then you need to submit to the whole law. You need to obey all 613 commandments that are found in the Old Testament. You need to obey every single one of them perfectly if you want to be justified by God. You've fallen from grace. You've been severed from Christ. Now, let me give you a couple mathematic equations here that will help you understand this. Faith in Jesus, if you're taking notes, faith in Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Faith in Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Another equation. This is the accurate biblical one. Faith in Jesus plus nada, nothing, zip, zero, equals everything. Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Another way of saying it is you are either saved by works or you are saved by grace. It can't be a mixture of both of them. As soon as you mix it, you corrupt grace. This is what Paul said in Romans 11.6. He said, But if it is by grace, talking about your salvation and acceptance to God, he says, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But it's real simple. If, if somebody gives you a gift, that's, just, that, that's grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. They just are trying to show their love for you, maybe. And, and they give you a gift. As soon as you say, wow, what a wonderful gift. Can I, can I at least give you a couple dollars to reimburse you a little bit? If you were actually to give them anything for that gift, it would no longer be grace. Grace is then poisoned. It's, it's tainted. For something to be of grace, there has to be no works whatsoever Otherwise, it's not grace. So Paul says, you can't add anything to your salvation. If you do so, you'll corrupt it. Can I give you another equation? I like math, in case you, in case you don't realize. <laughs> Let me give you one more equation. This is what the false teachers, the Judaizers were saying. They were saying, faith plus works equals justification. This is the biblical equation. And you'll see that God's math is, is a little different. Faith equals justification plus works. I think that's really good. I, I got that from R.C. Sproul. I can't say it's original for me. What, what does he mean? He says, faith, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that equals justification. You are accepted. You are loved by God. And that will result in works. That's why he says this faith equals justification and works. 
faith will result in acceptance by God and that will lead to works. But make sure that you understand that works is the result of justification, not the grounds of your justification. That's very important. Now, because of this distortion of the Gospel, uh, Paul is astonished. Uh, Paul is angry. But understand, his, his anger here is the anger of a loving father who is passionate about the well-being of his children. Any of us parents who see something threatening the well-being of our children, we get upset because we love them. We don't want anything to harm them. So Paul, he's astonished. He's upset because he loves the Christians at Galatians and he doesn't want them to fall away from Christ. Now look at how he begins in verse 6. And by the way, before I begin in verse 6, um, I need to tell you what isn't between verses 5 and 6 that should be. Um, what isn't between verses 5 and 6 that is in all the other epistles without exception is some note of thanksgiving. If you read through all the other epistles, and you, you can just start at the beginning, you can start with Romans, uh, Corinthians, and then skip over Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go right on down the list. In every single epistle, he begins by saying, this is Paul, grace to you, and then he says something like, I thank my God for you every time I remember you and all my prayers for you I give thanks. Conspicuous by its absence in this epistle is no mention of thanksgiving whatsoever. That's odd. That really should strike us. He even was thankful for the, for the Corinthian believers. I mean, think about the Corinthian believers. I mean, they were tolerating sexual immorality at their church. They were getting drunk on the communion wine. There was all this division in the church. Even for those believers who were an utter mess, he had some note of thanksgiving, but to the Galatians, no thanksgiving whatsoever. Which tells you right away that what's going on is serious. And it is serious. And it's one of those conversations. I don't know if you ever had a conversation you know, with a friend and they say, you know, let me, let me just get right to it. Let me tell you why I wanted to get together. You kind of brace yourself. Saying, okay, this, this is serious. No, no beating around the bush. This, this is what's going on here. Paul, Paul is saying, we're, we're going to get right to it. And, and he says, beginning in verse 6. I just stepped on my glasses. No, it's good. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Three quick observations. Uh, Paul, to put it in the vernacular of the day, is ticked off. Twice he says, anybody who preaches another God, I don't care if it's the angel Gabriel himself, let him be accursed. What does that mean? Accursed. Can, can I say it to you bluntly so you don't miss it? 
Paul is basically saying, God damn anyone who preaches a gospel contrary to the one I have preached to you. That's what it means. The NIV translates this, let him be eternally condemned. Because when you preach a false gospel, you lead people to hell. This is serious. Which is why Paul gets right to what he wants to say. Next, we should notice that he's saying that the believers are turning away from grace. Look at what he says in verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. They're turning away from grace. And when you turn away from grace, you are doomed. Because it's our only hope of salvation. And he says also, you are turning away from God Himself. When you turn away from the true God, you turn away from God. Again, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're turning away from Him. You're turning away from God Himself who called you in the grace of Christ. And right from the very beginning, He's trying to grab a hold of their attention. He's trying to shake them as it were. Grab them by the shoulders and say, look at what you are doing. Do you realize what you are doing? Do you realize what is at stake here? Your salvation your relationship with God Himself. This is serious. Now, as we sit here this morning, some 2,000 years later, we have to ask this question, well, is this relevant for us? Um, I, I doubt that there's any in this congress, or excuse me, in this congregation who are thinking, oh boy, you know, yeah, I've, in the past I thought i got to get circumcised if, if I'm going to receive salvation. Doubt if there's any in this congregation who, who are thinking, boy, I, I need to obey the whole law of Moses if I'm going to be accepted by God. I, I doubt that there's any in this congregation who are thinking that that's what they have to do. So we might be thinking, this, this really isn't relevant for us today. I, but I'm going to say it is. And I, I want to draw our attention to three points. Uh, the first point is the slide from grace. The slide from grace. And I want you to realize that I think this is slip, slipperier than we might think. I remember a few years ago, I was, I, I was talking to Caleb and I said, Now, Caleb, what, uh, what, do, what do you have to do to go to heaven? And I just wanted to make sure he, he understood. You know, what, what do you have to do to get, get into heaven, to be right with God? What, what, what do you have to do? How can you be confident that you'll go to heaven? And, and, and he said, well, I, I have to be a, a Christian. I, I have to go to church. I have to, read, I have to read my Bible. I have to try to be a good person. And I thought, oh man, what has his mother been teaching him? <laughs> where, where did he get the heresy that he had to be a good person to be accepted by God? Do, do you know where he got that heresy? I'll tell you where he got that heresy. He got this her he got that heresy from this pulpit right here. He really did. I, I mean that. He got it from right here. Because when we read through the scriptures, when we listen to a message, we instinctively 
think in moralistic terms. Albert Moeller has talk, talked about this. When we read the Bible, we instinctively think, oh yeah, I have to be a better Christian. I better stop lying. I better stop stealing. I better stop this and that. And I better start going to church more. And I better start giving money. And I better start serving. And hopefully if I do all that, then I'll be okay. Because, because that, that's just part and parcel of our culture. So it's a part of our DNA. So we just think, that's what I have to do. And even as Christians, we think we have to be good people. Matter of fact, this, this slide is so easy. Peter, the Apostle Peter, went down the slide. Turn to Galatians 2. Beginning at verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, that's his other's name, other name, came to Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, not Antioch, Illinois. <laughs> Think, wow, well, I want to go to where he was. Can we see the site? No. <laughs> but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Can you see it? We would say something like, I got right in his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Before certain men came from James. These are the Judaizers. Before these men came and started saying, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to obey all the law of Moses. You can't just believe in Jesus, you Gentiles, and think that you're okay. He ate with Gentiles. And that means more than, you know, he just sat down and they had a nice meal. That means he had fellowship with them. He accepted them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then these men came, they started spreading their message, and even Peter gave in to them and drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas... I mean, Paul, even Barnabas... You know what his nickname was? you remember his nickname, Barnabas? Son of Encouragement. Barnabas, the great encourager. Barnabas, the one who would say, we got to accept everybody. Welcome them. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like a Jew? Notice what Paul is saying. Stands toe to toe with Peter. He doesn't say, "Hey, you're you're breaking the prejudice rule." He says, "You're not acting in accordance with the gospel," which says that it's by grace alone, regardless of anything that we do. Peter, your conduct is not in line with the gospel. Peter had slipped into moralism on a, on a practical level. Very easy to happen. Churches do it. When they teach that we have, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to believe this, dress this way, do what I mean. It's it's, it's real subtle. Can, can I can I give you a little justification salvation test? Won't be won't be too pain painful. <laughs> here here it is, class. Uh, do you believe that salvation? Justification 
is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without any works whatsoever being added. Do you believe that? Raise your, raise your hand if you, don't, if you don't mind. Raise your hand. What a smart class. You all get an A plus in theory. Now let me ask you some questions to see how you do in practice. Do you believe that God loves you just as much as He loved Jesus? Just as much. Not a little less, not close to as much as He loves you. Just as much as He loves Jesus so that you are so overwhelmed you have to fight back tears. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants to use you in ministry, in your work environment, in your family, in absolutely astounding ways, miraculous ways? Do you believe that? Without a shadow of doubt, God's going to work miracles through my life or do you think that I'm not quite worthy? to be used like God would use a Billy Graham or some other person like that. Let me ask one more question. When you come to church on a Sunday morning, do you feel a little less accepted by God? A little less loved by God because you didn't have a good week? Because you fell into that sin again? Because you missed church for a couple of weeks? Do you feel like you're a little less loved and a little less accepted because oh, I haven't measured up this last week or in the last couple of weeks? Do you feel a little less loved or a little less accepted? If that is true, if you feel that way, it shows that in practice you really do think it's grace, but in practice it really does depend on my performance at least a little bit. I'm that way. I get an A in theory, but in practice, I don't always get that, that good of a grade. I, I think grace, but then there's something inside of me. I, I think it's just part of the fallen nature that says, but I really at least have to do a little bit on my part if God's going to use me, if God's going to bless me. That's, that's the slide from grace that is very easy and we need to be aware of. How about the power of grace? I think, and I could be wrong, but I, I think we're a little afraid of grace. You know, when I stand up there and I just say, it's just grace. It's grace, friends. I think a little bit gets a little nervous because some of us want, well, Pastor, you need to qualify that a little bit. Because if you just say, you know, grace, 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 some people are going to think, grace, I can go out and live however I want because it's grace. I think some of us, don't understand how grace changes us. Again, in practice, I think we think, yes, it's grace, but there has to be at least a little bit of guilt to help keep people in check, right? Just at least a little bit of guilt so that people are, are afraid of, of, of sinning. Which means we don't understand grace. We don't understand the power of grace. So let's consider the power of grace. 1 Corinthians 
1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul is talking about his, his ministry and he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. This is very important. Let me just pause here for a moment to make you understand. We, we all agree that we're saved by grace, but we also need to see that we're sanctified by grace, we're made holy by grace, we also live by grace. It's not as though we start being saved by grace through faith, but then we start living by grace plus working really hard. We start with grace, we continue with grace, we end with grace. And grace doesn't leave us where we are. Grace makes a difference. He says, His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Sounds like he's bragging, but then he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul says, I worked really hard. Sounds like he's bragging, but he says, but... It was just all grace. Great grace is a power. Titus 2, 11 and 12. You've got to turn ahead a little bit. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you know, good eating, peaches and cream. And then you come to all the T's. You've got the big T's, First and Second Thessalonians. And then you have the medium-sized T's, First and Second Timothy. And then you have the small T, Titus. Okay, some of us need those little helps. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. He's still talking about the grace of God. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I like how the NIV puts it. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness, worldly desires, and passions. God's grace helps us to say no. Not grace and a little bit of guilt trip. God's grace helps us to say no to those things and yes to pleasing God, living for God. That's what grace does. I'll turn back to Galatians. Galatians 1.2 Excuse me, one three. This is found in every single one of Paul's epistles. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of Paul's epistles begins with the word of grace and ends with the word of grace. Class, one more question. This is the last one, I think. <laughs> Why does he begin every epistle with the word of grace and end every epistle with the word of grace? What do you think he might be trying to communicate? We need grace. We need grace from beginning to end. Now, let me ask, ask you this question. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Christians believe in a triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here we see that the Father is mentioned and the Son is mentioned. You ever, have you ever wondered, well, where is the Spirit? Where is the Spirit? We would expect to see some kind of reference to the Spirit. I don't see the Spirit. Do you see the Spirit in this? Where is the Spirit? Tell me, Brian. The Spirit is in the grace. When God gives you grace, when God gives you peace, what is He handing you? He is handing you, as it were, the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me back this up biblically. 
Philippians 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 4. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your bequests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if you pray when you're anxious with thanksgiving, the peace of God will comfort you. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So two verses earlier, he said the peace of God will be with you. Now he says the God of peace will be with you. What's the difference between the peace of God and the God of peace? There is no difference. They're the same thing. So when God gives you His peace, He is giving you Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. So it's no wonder that we're transformed by grace because the grace is in the person of the Holy Spirit. And one final point, the results of grace. And and here I just want to be uh, real practical and just draw your attention to a couple of points. Um, and these I get from Tim Keller. He's been very helpful in helping me see how the gospel works itself out in life. Um, we have an outline for you. This is from Tim Keller's book, Center Church. Um, we can talk about it later during Fellowship Feast if you like. Uh, right in the middle, he talks about self-image. And he says, my self-image, and this is under religion, and by religion he means grace plus works that we've been talking about. That's religion as opposed to the gospel, Christianity. He says, my self-image swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to people who fail. And when I am not living up to the standards, I feel humble, but not confident. I feel like a failure. That's human nature, isn't it? We come to church and we had a good week. We did what God was calling us to do. And like, we're pretty good. Pretty, pretty good Christian. We have a lousy week. You know, we were tired. We didn't wake up in the morning. We we missed our devotions a couple of times. We had to rush off to work. We didn't read the Bible and pray. Ah, walk into church like this, right? Because we slipped away from grace, and our image of ourselves is based upon our performance which will result in either pride, looking down our nose at other people, and not as spiritual, godly as we are. You know, if, if they were, they'd educate like we do. they dress like we do. You know, if they were as godly, they'd drive what I drive. You know, whatever goes right on down the list. You'd be surprised of how subtle it is. Or if we don't measure up, you know, we just feel like failures. We feel like losers. We hang our heads and we're shamed, embarrassed. But, if our self-image is based on these two twin truths. I am a wretched sinner. I've defied God's commandments. But, God sent Christ to die for me. He's lifted me up. He's adopted me into His family. Matter of fact, He's raised me so high, I am seated with Christ on heavenly thrones. I'm ruling and reigning with Christ. Wow! 
So on the one hand, because of our sin, we are just humbled in the dirt. But on the other hand, He lifts us up and He exalts us. And because of that, we're not prideful, we're not arrogant because we know we're sinners. But on the other hand, we don't you know, wallow in self-pity because look at what God has done for me. We don't look down at others because we know it's all of grace. It balances out our self-image and it makes all based on Jesus Christ so we can have a humble boldness as we talk to people. And when we talk to people with that kind of attitude, they're willing to hear what we have to say because they know we're not looking down at them. But they also know that, boy, he has a confidence, he has assurance that I don't have. What is it? And one other point, forgiveness. You ever heard someone say this? I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. You ever heard that? And again, Tim, Tim Keller has helped me with this. He, he mentioned that there was a man in his church committed adultery, utterly shamed by what he did. But his wife forgave him. He met with the leaders of the church. They forgave him when he asked for forgiveness. All the family members involved said, yet yeah, what you have done was wrong. We forgive you. He said, everybody forgave this man. His wife, his family members, his friend, the church. Everybody said, we forgive you. The man said, I can't forgive myself. And Tim tells us, what's going on here? Why, why does it matter? God has forgiven you, your wife. Your, you can't forgive yourself. What, what's going on here? And he finally he realized what the problem was. This man grew up in a very prudish home. And he knew, even though his parents were dead, but he knew that if my parents knew what I had done, they would never forgive me. And the reason why he couldn't forgive himself it's because his parents, even though they had died years ago, were still his God. They still had a control on him. He was really going through life thinking, i got to please my parents. I have to live up to their expectations. And if I can do that, then I am somebody. His real God wasn't the true God. His real God was his parents. So whenever someone says, I can't forgive myself, that's because their true God didn't forgive them. And even worse, that God can't forgive. There's only one God that can forgive. And that's the God who created the heavens and the earth. That's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When people say, I can't forgive myself, that's because their true God maybe is their self-image and it's been ruined. They can't forgive themselves because my self-image, my real God has been ruined. If God forgives, I mean, think about it. If God in heaven forgives us, it really doesn't matter if anyone else forgives me or not. I mean, it does. I'm exaggerating a little. Obviously, it does. But ultimately, if God forgives me, I'm forgiven because He's the one that matters more than anybody else. The Gospel helps us with this because it helps us to see our sin and God's forgiveness and acceptance. And then we can say, I'm loved by God. I'm forgiven by God. I'm cleansed by God. And if that puts a smile on your face, if that sets you free, then, not just in theory, but in practice, the Gospel has taken root and gotten down into your heart where you really live. 
and it's not just in your head. When you can praise God for your salvation and just be so thankful of what He's done, then you know the Gospel has taken root. Galatians 1, verse 3 and 4. Look what Paul says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins. Wow! He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Gave Himself for our sins so that we could be delivered from all the expectations of this life. Sin so that we could be delivered. Set free from sin. Why? Why would God do that for us? Why would God do that for you? Do you deserve that? Why would God do that for you? We're told, according to the will of our God and Father, for, for whatever reason He just said before the foundation of the world, Christ is going to die for you. I'm going to open your blind eyes. You're going to come to Christ. I'm going to set you free. And you say, why me? Because I just want to. Really? Yeah. It's all because of me. And when that grips you, you know what happens? You just burst out in praise. And this is what Paul is doing. <laughs> to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, Paul is not writing this because he says, okay, what should I say next? You know, he's getting his pen out. Oh, this will sound really good. This will sound very poetic. And, you know, this is really a nice kind of literary flourish. This, this is just praise. To Him be the glory forever. Wow, I can't believe He's done that for me. You can tell the Gospels got down into your heart when you go, wow! That's, that's worship right there. Wow! There's probably a better way to say it, but... Wow! Glory be to God. Thanks be to God. He did that for me. Absolutely stunning. And when that gets down in your heart, you will live differently, friends. You will live differently. You really will. Someone will say, ah... You did this, and they'll criticize you. There'll be genuine criticism. You'll be like, yeah, you know, you're right. I did that. I shouldn't do it. You won't be devastated. How many people are devastated when they're criticized? Oh, I'm criticized. You know, I couldn't believe. Well, because we care what other people think. Why do we care what they think? But when we really care what God thinks because of what He has done, we can handle criticism. We can handle difficult. We have God. It provides us with a stability that we otherwise wouldn't have if the gospel could just grab a hold of us it would utterly transform our lives and how we live every single day and I pray that it does the gospel of grace grace plus nothing which results in everything including transformation and life eternal to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank You for Your grace. And I do pray that even right now, Your Holy Spirit will embed it into our hearts firmly. May it be the driving force of our lives. May it influence us in ways that we can't even imagine. Father, thank You for Your absolutely amazing grace. We are what we are because of grace alone. And we will 
become amazing things by grace alone. And You're going to do wonderful things through us. And it's going to be because of grace alone. Father, may we never forget this truth. May it be the anchor of our souls and our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.